Hello, this is Robert Bathurst with the fourth of our five podcasts celebrating the first 900 years of Leeds Castle. At the end of the last episode, we left it with the corpses of 13 knights who had tried to defend it from Edward II, hanging from the Barbican gates. In those days, victors liked to keep bodies suspended for a few weeks, sometimes years, just to keep everyone honest. In this episode, we're going to skip forward a couple of centuries, leaving the unfortunate Edward II to his grim appointment with a red-hot poker, if the story's true, to find Henry VIII in peak condition. He's 29 years old, sporty, good-looking, charming, musical, and possibly still in a loving relationship with Catherine of Aragon, although both of them are feeling the pressure of having only one surviving child, Mary, to show for seven pregnancies in eleven years of marriage, and Catherine is now thirty-five. It's May the 22nd, 1520, and the royal couple are here at Leeds Castle to prepare for a landmark event in 16th century European politics, Henry's momentous first meeting with the French king, Francis I, scheduled to take place two weeks later at a specially chosen neutral location just south of Calais, the now-famous Field of Cloth of Gold. Francis is in his pomp, too. He's twenty-five, and as dashing and brilliant as Henry, maybe even more so, and maybe bothering Henry. But for the moment, Henry's probably happy to be at Leeds Castle, and so is Catherine, because it's one of her favourites among the castles they own. How do we know this? Well, I'm going to put this to Annie Kimcaran-Smith, who's curator at Leeds Castle, and who's kindly agreed to supply the specialist knowledge we're going to need to explain Henry and Catherine's special relationship with Leeds Castle. And later I'll be asking historian Simon Thurley to help us understand what happened at the Field of Cloth of Gold itself. So, Annie, thanks for coming. Hello, Robert. Tell us about Henry, Catherine and Leeds Castle. So by the time Henry VIII comes to the throne, which is in 1509, Leeds Castle had fallen out of use as a royal residence and really into a state of neglect. But for Henry, its large estate and hunting grounds were just too good to resist. Three years into his reign, he appoints one of his closest advisers, Sir Henry Guilford, to take charge of Leeds Castle and bring it back into service as a favoured royal residence. And he commissions the most important programme of building works here since Eleanor of Castile transformed it in the late 13th century. Are Henry and Catherine personally involved in the project or do they just leave Sir Henry Guilford to get on with it? I think it's safe to assume that they were personally involved because the improvements that they made were all about making Leeds Castle a beautifully appointed home for Catherine. So they add a whole new floor to Eleanor of Castile's Gloriette on the smaller of the two islands to create a suite of private rooms for Catherine where she's still very much in evidence today. For example, her and Henry's coats of arms still decorate fireplaces in various rooms and they're sometimes depicted entwined in a lover's knot as well. So it really is a purpose-designed love nest in many ways, and it may be significant that he didn't have these symbols removed once he'd moved on from Catherine and replaced her with Anne Boleyn. So perhaps we can assume that he always remembered their times here together fondly. Yes, but on that day in May 1520, they're not here for recreation, but to prepare for this big meeting in France where Henry and Francis are going to declare their commitment to lasting peace and form a power block against Charles V and his Holy Roman Empire, which is threatening to dominate Europe. 
Henry and Catherine have brought 5,000 people with them, all major players in the political and religious life of the country, plus their attendants. Leeds Castle hasn't hosted a bigger crowd since that army of 30,000 besieged the place in 1321. And they're all dancing to the tune of Henry's great orchestrator, Thomas Woolsey, the butcher's son from Ipswich, who is not only Lord Chancellor of England, but also Cardinal of the Holy Roman Church, Archbishop of York, and Bishop of both Lincoln and Durham. He was a busy man. The serious VIPs are settling into their accommodation in the castle, while around the grounds tents are being quickly set up and preparations for lunch are being made. Sir Henry Guilford and his team are busy making sure that all these people have enough to eat today and tomorrow morning before they set off with all their gear for the coast. That's the scene I'm asking you to imagine as I bring in my second expert guest, the historian Simon Thurley. So, Simon, welcome. Uh, Henry's going to meet Francis I near Calais. I can see he needed a few people around him, but 5,000? <laughs> yes, well, that was broadly the number that Wolsey had agreed with Francis I when he made his various trips to France to discuss the arrangements. I mean, it had to be a meeting of equals. You see, you've got these two formidable powers who together represented a, a check on Charles V's ambitions to essentially take over Europe. You see, the Holy Roman Empire had got France completely surrounded, from Spain in the south to the Netherlands in the north. And so for the most important people in England and in France, the clergy, the military, the aristocracy, attendance at the Field of Cloth of Gold was absolutely mandatory. And both sides had also invited ambassadors from all over Europe to witness the great meeting and report back. And that is, of course, why we've got so many first-hand accounts it was a very carefully orchestrated international PR exercise. On the morning of May the 23rd, Henry and his 5,000 set off from Leeds Castle for Dover Castle, where, rather deviously, he's arranged to meet Charles V, who's patrolling the English Channel, monitoring developments. Simon, if you were Francis, or Charles V for that matter, would you trust Henry an inch? <laughs> I wouldn't trust any of them. Um, and actually, we also don't know what Henry, Charles and Woolsey, who was always involved in everything, actually talked about in Dover. After a few days in Dover Castle, the 5,000, with nearly 3,000 horses, set sail for Calais in some of the biggest ships in Henry's expanding navy, loaded with whatever provisions Woolsey's victuallers have decided can't be procured in France including venison from the Leeds estate. These victuallers have been busy for the past few months. We know this from the detailed accounts, arranging for dizzying amounts of livestock and alcohol to be ready for them at Calais and at Guine, the last English town in France where the English will be based for the main event. The inventory of victuals gives us some great insights into the Tudor diet, or at least what the great and the good like to eat and drink. 560 tonnes of beer that's about 366,000 litres, and 100,000 litres of Gascon wine, Bordeaux, as we call it these days, 340 cattle and 2,200 sheep, and then all the delicacies for the top table, swans, peacocks, porpoises, and plenty of cream for the king's cakes. There was £460 worth of spices for the rich sauces they loved. But as for vegetables, there were precious few, because they didn't really do vegetables back then. 
the whole food and drink bill comes to £8,839. You can imagine how much that was when you consider that the total wage bill for all the cooks they took with them was just £50. So, Simon, we've established that this whole venture was an extraordinary exercise in food supply, or gluttony if you like, but you're not going to impress Francis I and the cream of the French aristocracy simply by laying on a good spread. No, um, I think you're right. The real magic that they're all about to witness at the Field of Cloth of Gold is the... I know the ingenuity and magnificence of the temporary pavilions and palaces that the architects, designers, decorators, craftsmen and everybody else had been working on for months and months. As you say, there are eyewitness descriptions of this extraordinary transformation of what was then and is still today, actually, an unremarkable landscape in the Pas de Calais. But we can see it best in the famous painting of the scene that still hangs at Hampton Court. And this was painted 25 years after the event, but it does match the eyewitness accounts. So there's no doubt really that it's a pretty faithful record. So when you look at it, the centrepiece of the picture is the English Palace, which stands on its 10,000 square metre brick base. It's got an elaborate gateway into a quadrangle. It's actually an ingenious prefab. The walls are made of painted fabric on a timber frame. The roof is timber and fabric too. And it's all painted to look like slate. So if you touched it, it must, I suppose, have wobbled. I mean, the four pairs of uh, long glass windows on the front are actually real glass. But these are also prefabricated in England, were were shipped over, um, over the channel. And in front of the palace... You can see the fountains flowing with beer and wine and the guests are gathering around them, not surprisingly, and some are already, I think, looking at just a little bit worse for wear. I'm looking at it now, Simon, and I can see that it's one of those pictures you're supposed to read from left to right. So, on the left, we have Henry arriving on his horse and to the right of the palace, we see the scene of his momentous first meeting with Francis. And beyond this action... There are pavilions and stadia stretching into the distance. It looks rather like the Olympics. Yeah, it was sort of Olympics, actually, and it almost lasted as long. I mean, it lasted from the 7th to the 24th of June, two and a half weeks. And, of course, it involved 5,000 people, plus another 5,000 on the French side, and all of them needed entertaining. So, as you say, there's a jousting arena. There's something that looks a bit like a dressage stadium. Um, There are martial arts exhibitions, archery fields, and, of course, there are grandstands for all the people who are just watching, gawping, if you like, at what was going on. And in the middle distance is the magnificent English banqueting pavilion. And uh, the records tell us that this was 120 feet tall and it was covered in brilliant silk shot through with gold thread. And this, of course, is the famous cloth of gold. And, you know, I hate to say it, but actually the French structures were almost as spectacular as the English ones, just not so prominent because, of course, this was a painting painted by the English. (laughs) Yeah, we've called it a kind of Olympics, but it seems also that it's a kind of World Expo feel to it as well, with rival nations exhibiting their architecture, their design flair, their ingenuity, their wealth. We know that Henry and Francis met for the first time at the beginning of the festival, with trumpeters heralding their entrances. Presumably they exchanged their assurances to each other then, 
So, Simon, what did they get up to for the next couple of weeks? <laughs> well, they feast, they dance, uh, they I guess they flirted with the ladies. They were both extremely good at that, of course. And they take part in the jousting because they're both extremely keen and very competitive sportsmen. Um, and just like the Olympics, there are prizes for the best performers. And um, perhaps not surprisingly, Henry and Francis finish joint top of the jousters. <laughs> although Francis uh, had his nose broken by a rather careless opponent. And they even, they even wrestle each other at one point. <laughs> well, wouldn't it be great if that's how head of state settled their differences today? <laughs> well, according to uh, an Italian ambassador's account of the event, Henry challenged Francis but was uh, pretty quickly beaten. And it won't surprise you to know that this moment is almost completely expunged from the English records. Oh, I wonder why. Well, after two and a half weeks of this, they must all have been just dying to get home. Rather like an Olympics or an Expo, the whole event has cost an absolute fortune and left both sides with these wonderful, costly structures. I wonder what happened to them all. But more importantly, Simon, um, was the event, would you say, a success? Did it lead to lasting peace? Well, um, there was peace for a while, but of course uh, we are only eight or nine years before the break with Rome. Um, Henry's split with the Catholic Church and then his subsequent divorce from Catherine and King Francis I deeply disapproved of all of this. And eventually these uh, pressures saw off even the great Thomas Wolsey, uh, who was the great diplomatic and organisational brains behind the field of cloth of gold. And it was his uh, failure to secure the Pope's approval for Henry's divorce, which of course sealed his fate eventually. So uh, would you say that it was all a, a great waste of time and money? Well, that's one way of looking at it. I mean, everybody clearly had a had a great time. So in that sense, it wasn't a waste of time. But I think another way of looking at it is that it did make quite an important statement about um, England's place in European cultural, diplomatic uh, and political life. And I think particularly artistically, it provided an opportunity for the English court to rub shoulders with the French court and English artists and craftsmen, learning, I think, from what the French and the Germans and uh, other craftsmen across Europe were, were doing themselves. Simon, thank you for those insights. Well, I'm going to catch up with Sir Henry Guilford, Henry VIII's warden of Leeds Castle, on his way back home from Calais, and ask Annie whether he too fell out of favour with the King, as so many others did. Annie, did Sir Henry Guilford manage to get back home to Leeds Castle from Calais and enjoy some welcome peace and quiet? I'm happy to say that Sir Henry kept his head in the most literal sense, even though he dangerously went on to oppose Henry VIII's divorce. But he resigned his position at court before he was pushed and died peacefully here in 1532. Henry VIII continued to use the castle from time to time, as did Thomas Cromwell, as he supervised the dissolution of local monasteries, but it was no longer the happy retreat it had been in the early part of his reign. And soon after his death, the castle passes into private ownership. Thank you. And in the final episode of this series, we'll be discussing how Olive, Lady Bailey, the last of its private owners, swept into Leeds Castle in 1926 and brought it back to life as a fabulous weekend destination for her glamorous guests. Uh, you'll be joining me for that, won't you, Annie? 
Certainly will, Robert. And so I hope will you listeners. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to rate or review any of these podcasts, we look forward to reading them. And remember that Leeds Castle is ready to welcome you 364 days a year. Thanks again for listening and thank you to Simon and Annie.